Father, thank you that you are a God who allows us to minister to the least of these. Thank you that you are a God who resources us beyond what we need so we can not always have what we want in order to further your kingdom. Thank you that you are a God who set the example for us by giving your Son, Jesus Christ, so that we could have an eternal relationship with you. Father, I pray that we would respond to you in a way that makes you smile, in a way that shows our thanksgiving, in a way that shows that you are worthy in our lives. Move us beyond ourselves and help us to be those in the kingdom of God making an impact for you. That is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, if a hundred Americans took a survey, a demographic survey, a hundred Americans took a demographic survey, when it came to the question, name your religious affiliation, name your religious affiliation, 75 of those Americans would check the box, Christian. Pretty impressive, right? 75% would check the box, Christian. Very impressive until you start to break it down, as Ed Stetzer has done in one of his uh, researches of the church trends and religious trends in the United States. Stetzer found that if you took those 75 people, 25 of them would be what is called cultural Christians. They're simply check the box Christian because they're not Muslim, and they're not Buddhist, and they're not Jewish, and they don't want to check none. So they check Christian. 25 would check the box because they are what he calls congregational Christians. We call them Christers, Christmas and Easter only. (laughs) Maybe they have a, a, a husband who comes to the church. Maybe they have a wife who comes to the church. Maybe they have some family. They're loosely connected, congregational Christians. They've been baptized, confirmed. They've done all that stuff. They checked the box. 25%, he said, would be what he calls convictional Christians. Those who really believe what they say they believe. Those who live it out in their life. Not perfectly. None of us are going to do that. But those who demonstrate in their life that they truly love Jesus Christ. Now, here's what Stetzer says. He says that the congregational Christians and the cultural Christians, he calls them the squishy middle, the nominal Christians. They are decreasing. They are shrinking. So we're living in a culture where it is fine to say none. I have no religious affiliation. That is shrinking. Convictional Christians are staying about the same. Now think about the impact that's going to have in our country. Here's what Stetzer says. By the way, college students, these kids getting ready to go to college, 30% of them already checked the box. None. They They don't care about making sure they check the box Christian. They just check the box none, 30%, and that's growing. Here's what Stetzer says. The next 20 years are going to be a challenge for convictional Christians and churches in many places. We are engaging in a cultural conversations often as the minority we truly are. You hear him? It's going to be a challenge in the next years. We're not going to live in a country that just has all these Judeo-Christian values. 
When we speak out, we are going to speak out as the minority we really are. The cultural Christians and the congregational Christians are going to shrink because it's going to cost us something. It's going to mean something to be a Christian. You ready for that? Are you ready for that? Are our children ready for that? Are our grandchildren ready for that? What are you doing? What are you doing to make certain that your kids you're raising up don't just become cultural or congregational Christians, but they are people who will stand and die if need be for the sake of Jesus Christ? Take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 3. To answer that question of are you a convictional Christian, it starts with our passage today, John chapter 3. After Jesus' first miracle we looked at last time, He and His disciples went down to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. In that day, people would travel long distances to celebrate the Passover, and at the Passover they would sacrifice an animal. It wasn't convenient to take a sheep or cattle or goats with you on a 70 to 100 mile journey. And so when you got to Jerusalem, uh, there was a business set up, a, a big business had been established right there in the temple where you could buy your sacrificial animal. And they were making some money off of it. Also, you had to pay uh, temple dues. It was a Roman world, and so you had to trade your Roman coins in for Jewish coins to pay the temple dues. There were people exchanging money at a, an exchange rate that was a little high. Jesus did not appreciate what was going on when He reached Jerusalem. Look at chapter 2, verse 15. He made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a marketplace? His disciples remembered what was written about the Messiah in the Psalms. Zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus lived with passion. He gives us no room to be a cultural or a congregational Christian, does he? He lived with conviction. Now, John says that when Jesus was in Jerusalem, he did many miraculous signs, and one man took note of those signs, and he wanted a private meeting with Jesus. Look at John chapter 3, verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He was a Pharisee, so he had strict adherence to the law. They took the Old Testament. Pharisees would take the Old Testament, and in a book called the Talmud, they added hundreds of rules. Some of those rules still exist today. When we were in Israel last spring, uh, we stayed in an Orthodox hotel, and it was the Sabbath, and so the Jewish elevator would open the doors by itself because you can't push the button on the Sabbath, and it would stop at every floor going up. So we took the stairs instead of the Jewish elevator. 
Also, since it was an Orthodox hotel, there was a time during the Sabbath when they had to specially cleanse the cafeteria. And so we couldn't eat in the cafeteria that day. We couldn't take milk into the cafeteria because, remember in the Old Testament, it says don't boil a kid in its mother's milk. And the Pharisees took that law all the way out to say, you can't even have milk touch meat. And so for fear that milk would touch meat in the cafeteria, you couldn't take milk into the cafeteria. So the Pharisaical law still exists today. Nehemiah was one of the original ones. But Nehemiah was also a member of the Jewish ruling council. That would be like today's Supreme Court. There are about 70 of these men, called the Sanhedrin and other places. And even though it was Roman rule, they ruled on Jewish matters, idolatry or false prophets. Nicodemus was well-known, and he was highly respected. He was at the top of his game, and God was working in his heart. He came to Jesus by night, the original Nick at night. I'm sorry, that's terrible. I had to say that. Lori's rolling her eyes at me, I'm sure. He came to Jesus at night for no other reason than just to have some uninterrupted time. And he addressed Jesus with a, with a respective title. And he came representing others who had similar questions. Look at chapter 3, the end of verse 2. Rabbi, we, there are others of us, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with them. Jesus, knowing the heart of man, cuts through all the formalities and gets right to the issue. Look at verse 3. I tell you the truth, no one, Nicodemus, can see the kingdom of God unless he is what? Born again. The kingdom of God here represents two things. It is a subjective genitive. Kingdom of God. God's kingdom. It's the place that God rules. And so there are two aspects of the kingdom of God. Whenever you read the kingdom of God in Scripture, two things you want to look at. One, it means heaven. It's eternity. That's where God rules. And so when you are a part of the kingdom of God, you are headed to eternity. But we're not there yet, are we? So the kingdom of God also means this realm in which we live today. This realm where in God's kingdom we are significant and we are secure and we are accepted and we are, and we are forgiven and we are empowered. All the, all the blessings of the spiritual life. And so in theology, when you talk about the kingdom of God, you always think of already, it's already here in us, but not yet. We haven't gone to heaven yet. Already, not yet. And Jesus says there's a prerequisite. If you want to be involved in the kingdom of God, if you want to experience the abundant life that God has for you now and spend eternity with Him in heaven, you must be born again or born from above. It describes a supernatural rebirth, a spiritual transformation from the inside out. It's not the experience of a cultural or congregational Christian who claim to have faith, but it absolutely does nothing in their life, nor does it describe a person whose outside works, like the Pharisee, think that their heart can be changed by what they do on the outside. Jesus said, this has to start from within. Peter calls it, describes it like this. You've been called out of darkness. Your heart was dark. You've been called into God's wonderful light. 
Paul says you are dead in your sins. You are a spiritual corpse. You could not move. God raised you up with Christ. You must be born again. Many people struggle with that, don't they? Nicodemus was one of them. He had spent his whole life trying to work his way to God. And many people do that. Some of you here today may be doing the same thing. Trying to spend your whole life doing good things, going through baptism, going through confirmation classes, doing the first communion, church attendance, giving some of your expendable income. Trying to be good enough for God Jesus says it will never happen. If anyone could have been good enough for God, Nicodemus would be leading the way. But Jesus looked him in the eye and said, you must be born again. Look at verse 4. Nicodemus didn't get it. He said, how can a man be born when he is old? Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born with water and the Spirit. Nicodemus was an expert in the law. And when he he knew, when Jesus said water and Spirit, that he was talking about the spiritual cleansing. In the Old Testament, water was used figuratively to talk about a spiritual renewal, a cleansing of the heart. And when it was combined with Spirit, I mean, that was spiritual transformation. Ezekiel 36, Nehemiah would have known this passage. I sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you. Nehemiah would have said, that's what Ezekiel was talking about, water and the spirit. In Titus uh, chapter 3, verse 5, Paul describes it as a washing of rebirth and renewal of the Spirit. That's what being born again means. There is a cleansing of your heart. There is repentance. I don't like what I'm doing. I don't like the way I'm going. I don't like the fact that I am moving away from God and will spend eternity in hell. I want to turn around. I want my heart cleansed. I want the empowerment of the Spirit in me because I can't live this life without Him. I want the spiritual renewal. I want something. I want fire within my soul. Now, how can we ever Be a cultural Christian or a congregational Christian when God has taken a heart of stone that was dead and made it a heart of flesh alive. Something has to happen. That has to come out of our lives in some way. Look at verse 5. Look at verse 6. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. You should not be surprised at me saying you must be born again. And Jesus said, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you cannot control it. Uh, you cannot tell where it comes from, and you can't tell where it's going. You can't see it in the English, but in the Greek, the same word is used for wind and spirit, the, the word pneuma. And so Jesus is using a play on words here. He's saying, Nicodemus, you, you got to think the breeze is blowing that night, right? And Jesus says, Nicodemus, feel that breeze? You're a smart man. You're the teacher of Israel. Where's the breeze coming from, Nicodemus? You're a smart man. You're an expert in the law. Where's the breeze going? Nicodemus, you can't control. You cannot control the breeze. Neither can you control the Spirit of God. You can't think that by doing all these things, 
You can control God in your life. You can't think that by keeping all this law you keep, you can somehow put God in a little box. You can't control the breeze, neither can you control the Spirit. God will do what He wants to do, and He will work in a supernatural way. It's not about you controlling the breeze. It's not about you controlling the Spirit of God. It's about God, Nicodemus, controlling you. Nicodemus still didn't get it. And Jesus said, Nicodemus, you are, the, you are a teacher of the law. In Greek, you are, you are the teacher in Israel. And you still don't get it. And I've tried to explain it to you. And you're not understanding. And so now Jesus gets to the heart of the matter. Look at verse 13. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of God. Of man. Underline Son of Man in your Bibles. That is Jesus' favorite designation for himself. He often calls himself the Son of Man. You know why? In the Old Testament, in Ezekiel and in the Psalms, Son of Man referred to a special person who was a human. So it included his humanity. In Daniel chapter 7, Son of Man is God. It includes his deity. So when Jesus says, I am the Son of Man, he is saying, I am fully human. I am fully divine. There is none like me. Fully God, fully man. Look at verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Again, Jesus is speaking to an expert in the Old Testament law. So Jesus is using an Old Testament story for Nicodemus. Just as in the Old Testament, in Numbers chapter 21, the Israelites were in the desert, they were wandering around, and they're complaining about not having enough water, complaining about not having enough bread, and God is tired of their complaining. And he sends snakes, remember the story, in uh, Numbers 21, he sends snakes, and the snakes are biting the people, and they are dying. And they say, okay, God, we're sorry. Please forgive us. And God tells Moses to make a snake of bronze and hold it on a pole. Remember that story? And anyone who looks on the snake will be healed. It's not the snake that heals them. It's the fact that they look in faith. They listen to God's word. They obey God's word. And Jesus said, the same's going to happen to me. I'm going to be lifted up physically on the cross. And all those who look to me on the cross, they're going to be healed. Their sins are going to be forgiven. I'm also going to be lifted up in the fact that I'm going to be exalted. I'm going to be raised from the dead. And all those who believe in my death and resurrection by the power of God, they're going to be healed. Their sins are going to be forgiven. And then it is Nicodemus who hears, for the first time, one of the most uh, known verses in all of Scripture, for God so loved the world. John 3.16, read it with me. You ready? For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. The word so means in this way. God loved the world in this way, that He delivered His Son over to death. 
God loved the world in this way, that He made Him, the Son of Man, who knew no sin, fully God, fully man, to be sin for us. That's the theological truth. Here's the practical application. Whoever believes, whoever looks to Him, whoever believes that God sent His Son to die for their sin, that person will not, what? Perish, but have eternal life. Think about that. Last time we talked about sin entering into the world, two times ago. We are under wrath. But God loves us so much that He sent His Son to die for us on the cross so that we would not perish but have eternal life. Now, the opposite of that is true, right? If you don't believe in the Son of God, you will perish. You will not have eternal life. But the truth of John 3.16 is God does not want that to happen. He wants you to trust in His Son. 2 Peter 3.9 says this, The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. If you're here today and you've not trusted in Jesus Christ alone as the only way to have a relationship with God, He is being patient with you. He does not want you to perish. He wants you to come home. And today we pray that's the day. Today is the day you do that. Look at verse 17. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. The world was already stood under condemnation. The world was already under God's wrath. We're sinners. God didn't send Jesus in the world to tell us that we were sinners. He sent Jesus into the world to save us, not to condemn us, but that the world through Him might be saved. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God the Son of God. From a human perspective, why do you think people don't trust in Jesus Christ? From a human perspective. Sometimes people come to me and they say, you know what? My brother is so smart. He's very intellectual. And, um, and he's not a Christian because he just doesn't understand everything. And if you can give me a book that would explain it all to him, he would come to Christ. Now, there's a great place for apologetics. And when someone is seeking, like Nehemiah, like, a, like a Nicodemus is doing, when they're seeking, man, that's when we, got, we have classes to gather around and explain, answer questions like Jesus is doing to Nicodemus. But don't tell me you're so intellectual that you have to have all your questions answered. You know why people don't come to Christ? It's a moral issue. They don't want to. Because if they come to Christ, they can't be the God of their life. They can't be in charge anymore. The verdict is, look at verse 19. 
This is the verdict. Jesus says, here's the, here, here's the issue. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into light for fear that their deeds will what? Be exposed. See, I don't want to come to Christ, not because I can't figure it out intellectually. A five-year-old can figure out, can understand that Jesus came and died for their sins. Some of you don't want to come to Christ because you know you're stepping into the light and your heart is exposed and it's ugly because you're living as your own God and you don't want that exposed. And you don't want to give in to anyone. You want to make sure you call the shots. But see, there's going to be a day when you don't call the shots. And you're going to stand before God. And only when you have trusted in Jesus Christ alone. That's the only way you can have a relationship with Him. Can you know you'll enter into heaven itself? So don't tell me how intellectual you are. It's a moral issue. Jesus said, light is coming to the world, but men love darkness rather than light. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ alone as the only way you can have a relationship with the living God? Some of you are here like Nicodemus and you're searching. That's a beautiful thing. God is speaking to you. And he'll answer every question you have. And he will lead you to himself. If you will put down your stuff, your desire to be your God, and trust in him. Will you do that today? That's where the story ends. But you got to wonder what happened to, uh, to Nicodemus, right? We'll turn over to John chapter 16. John chapter 16, look at verse 38. Nicodemus is mentioned in chapter 7 of John when the Pharisees are, are wanting to put Jesus on the cross, and Nicodemus says, wait a minute, we, we, we give a man a fair trial, don't we? And the Pharisees, wait, are you one of his? Are you one of those people from Galilee like him? And now he's mentioned in verse 38 of chapter 19. Later, Joseph of Arimathea, Jesus has now been crucified. His disciples are gone. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Check this out. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. Does that describe anyone here? A disciple of Jesus, but secretly because you fear those at school, because you fear those at work, because your neighbors may not you know, think you're one of those born-again Christians. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body. Look at verse 29. He was accompanied by who? Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. And Nicodemus, 
Remember, he, he's a wealthy man. He's the top of his game. He brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. That was what was used to embalm royalty. Taking Jesus' body. These guys are no longer in secret, are they? They went to the cross and they took down Jesus' body, the two of them. They wrapped it with spices and strips of linen. And they were the ones who carried the body of Jesus in front of all the world to see to a grave, a tomb that had never been used. Nicodemus came to Jesus with a private conversation, but now he went public. I am willing, he said, to demonstrate that I love this one who died on the cross for my sins. And it could have been Nicodemus who said, hey, just wait. Because he said three days later, he's not going to be in the grave any longer. So, so where do you stand with Jesus? Cultural, congregational, convictional. Do you love the darkness rather than the light? The darkness of materialism. The darkness of pornography. The darkness of pride. The darkness of sexual immorality. The darkness of living together before you're married. The darkness of homosexuality. The darkness of, adult, of uh, adultery. The darkness of, of, of staying just this side of sin. That's where a lot of people live, isn't it? Just this side of sin. Of sin, just skirting on the, on the barely across the line. Is that where you want to live as a believer? God is calling us to be convictional Christians, to be all in, because Jesus was all in for us. And that's what we celebrate. That's what we remember when we take communion. You cannot hold the bread in your hand and have in your mind Jesus dying on the cross for you. And you cannot hold the cup in your hand and think about the blood of Christ that was shed for you, representing his death, and just be a congregational Christian. Unless you are so used to the liturgy and formalities that it means nothing to you anymore. And that's not why we take communion. Communion is that time when we stop and have time with the Lord, holding his body, holding his blood, and saying, Jesus, you died for me on a cross, naked, not like the picture show. Am I willing to step forth and live for you? Am I willing to demonstrate and tell others about you? Am I playing a game or am I in this thing for real? And if you're not in it for real, just let the bread and the past cup, bread and the cup pass today. And instead, you spend this time thinking, Lord, i got to get serious about this. I want to be a, a Christian of conviction. My children depend on it. My grandchildren depend on me. And I want to be one who demonstrates in my life, in my world, in my school, in my office, that I will stand alone for Jesus Christ.